Great to see you guys on a Labor Day weekend. It's true faithfulness. <laughs> true, I love you. True, I want to be here. That's awesome. Um, we'll see what happens at the second service. Maybe it'll just be me. We'll, we'll see. Um, my name's Chris. Whoa. And I have a really loud voice. Do you know? All right. I'm Chris, and I am coming up at the tail end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, aka Gospel Cardiology. And so I am, we are literally, we are rounding third, we are almost home, and we have two more weeks in our summer series on this most famous sermon, on this, to many people, this most beloved sermon um, that really just preaches itself, doesn't it? I mean, you don't, you need us a little bit to talk about it, but I mean, really, you just, I hope you've been reading through this sermon just you know, front to back, these three chapters um, as we've been going through it this summer. Because it really does, um, and so, I mean, it really does help us just to read it, just to hear Jesus' words. And, you know, this is a favorite sermon. I mean, for, for so many people, for so many even modern thinkers, so many people from other religions, so many people from other perspectives, they just love this sermon. And, um, you know, it is considered by many one of the most beautiful treatises on ethics and living. And, you know, this, this sermon is really how we want everyone else to live, isn't it? Right? This is how we really expect everyone else to live. And, but there's a lot of people that are so sentimental about these words in this sermon. But they've never really read it. <laughs> You know, you ask people, yeah, isn't that the Sermon on the Mount where this happens and that happens? And, and yeah, but you can tell that they've never really, really read it. And, but yet they will say, oh, I love that. And, I, you know, I, I don't know if you've really read the Sermon on the Mount that you're, that you're that sentimental about it. It is certainly beautiful ethics, but man, it is, it's tough. And we're going to get to some of the most hardest hitting, I mean, c- in this, the hard, hardest hitting words in the, in the sermon and maybe in the whole Bible this morning. So if you've come, welcome to Redemption Hill. This is gonna be intense. Um, and it's gonna take this week and next week for us to finish, finish this out. But I, I wanna take us to the last words recorded here in the chapter. And this is really kind of the, ap- this is what happens after the sermon is done. Matthew 7, 28 says this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. The crowds were astonished. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. I tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna help everybody right now by turning on my timer. How about that? Everyone's gonna be happy with me. Here we go. All right. What about this word astonished? This word is kind of lost on our ears because I think we use this word so much. But when you look at the real heart of this word, it really means to absolutely strike out of one's senses. It points to a great deal more than just being mildly surprised. It is absolute shock and awe is what this word encapsulates. And what, what Matthew is saying here is that after the sermon, people were dumbstruck. 
They were hanging, their, their mouths were hanging open. They were muttering to themselves. They were wandering around talking to one another in shock about what they had just heard. It's shock probably at the depth of meaning in this sermon. It's shock at who Jesus is and who he was claiming to be by saying these things and then shock at just this discerning line, even here at the end, that Jesus is drawing between, between two kinds of people. And I know that there's probably people here that you may like the idea of Jesus as a wonderful person, as someone to aspire to, as a great example, but you don't really care for his teaching or you don't really identify with the actual historical Jesus. And then there's some that love his teaching but don't really believe all that he said he was. And, and this is so much of the modern mind. Um, in fact, one of my really good friends, a neighbor of mine, uh, we were talking about um, the, the, the other night. I was telling him, what, what, what are you working on? I'm working on the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Really? You love the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> yeah, the Beatitudes, right? Yeah, the Beatitudes, yeah, yeah. He's like, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I was like, this guy. He's, he is a wonderful friend of mine. He's a practicing Buddhist. And he's amazing at what he does in the Buddhist tr- tr- tradition, you know, and, and, and just is so convicted. And so his core convictions line around, just are so in line with Buddhist thinking. He doesn't believe anything about Jesus, but he loves the Beatitudes, right? So we just have this, we have this mentality about this sermon. There, there was a professor um, at Texas A&M, and she decided one day to give her students an essay, an essay project on the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so she, she said, hey, read, read the sermon and write an essay. And her name was Virginia Stem Owens. And she was shocked by what came back and, what, and her students' response to it. Because it was like few, few, even in Texas, had heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Even fewer were familiar with any of its teachings. And so she said, hey, read it and write it and write about it. You know what they thought? They absolutely hated it. This is what one student said. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I have to be perfect. And nobody is. One other, one other student said, the things asked in this sermon are absolutely absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone like that is murder. Those are some of the most extreme inhuman statements I have ever heard. The the professor then wrote later, she said, finally, finally, biblical illiteracy in this country has reached a point where people are able to respond to Jesus' words without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. See, if if we really take to heart the Sermon on the Mount, we won't be sentimental we'll be struck, we'll be shocked, we'll be in awe. So I'm gonna read for us the, 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 the remainder of the passage and then we're gonna get through it in this week and next week. So turn with me to verse 13. And as we read this, I think we'll realize why, why this sermon is so hard hitting. If you haven't sensed it, if you haven't felt it even so far. Enter by the narrow gate, verse 13. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
Beware, verse 15, of the false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, this is Jesus talking, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Wow. The word of the Lord. (laughs) So this is the end. Jesus is done teaching. And he is done talking and he is now looking right at his audience. He is looking right at us. He is looking right through us. And the biggest thing that he is saying in, the, in this last passage is that this sermon is not about ethics. You are not dealing with philosophy and concepts and beautiful ways of living. You are dealing with me. This is not a sermon to be considered. This is a sermon to be responded to. He's looking right through all of us. And so, as you see in this passage, you see there's two, there's two gates and two ways. And that's what we're gonna talk about this week. But then next week, and I'm telling you all this so I know you'll come back, all right, there'll be two trees and two houses. And these are illustrations for us of the two categories in life, the only two categories in life that really matter. He said it back in verse 21, those who know Jesus and those who don't those who are related to him, and those who are not. And so this week, we are gonna get to the first two gates in two ways. So here's where we're doing. We're gonna talk about what is the meaning behind, behind the narrow gate and the narrow way? What does narrow mean? And then we're gonna look at what is the narrow way like? Then what kind of people, and this will be the big one for us, what kind of people are on the broad way or the narrow way? And then finally, how do we enter this narrow gate? How do we enter this narrow gate and live on the narrow way? So this word narrow, first of all, if you've ever read this in in the King James, you know it reads a little differently. It says straight is the gate and narrow is the way. And the King James uses the word straight. It's a very loaded, powerful word. And it's not straight like S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, like straight line. This is straight, like S-T-R-A-I-T. And I think one of the words that we know really well in our vernacular is if someone's in dire straits, 
right, means they're in a bad way. It means they're in a tough place. And I'm not talking about the music band of the 70s and 80s. I'm talking about the reality of being in a dire, you know, like, it was 70s and 80s. I know, we're that old, okay? Dire straits means that we're in a very tight place. You know the Straits of Magellan at the bottom of South America, right? This is South America, right? Not Africa. Anyway, um, I hope it's South. I went to the University of Richmond. I went to public school too, but here we go. The the, uh, Straits of Magellan, right? You're going from the Atlantic Ocean, this huge body of water, going all the way around to the Pacific Ocean, but you're going through this narrow, incredibly narrow, tight passage. Those are straits. And so this word straight means difficulty. It means crushing, it means squeezing, it means constricting, it means straining, it means burdening. So this word narrow gate, it really means this is something tough, this is something that is going to be dangerous. And that's the way it looks. And it's interesting, and and the irony of, of the illustration is enter by the narrow gate, right? For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. It's ironic, isn't it? Because we, when we're reading the Bible, when life is described, it's spacious. Like David in the Psalm says, God, you have brought me into life. You've brought me into a spacious place. My set, my feet are able to walk in a wide place. When we think about life, it's all about spaciousness. When we think about life, it's like our true country, we're here. But there's, here's the illustration. There's a tiny little gate that looks like it's gonna kill us if we were to go through it. But that's the way that leads to life, to spaciousness, to rolling hills, to vistas, to snow-capped mountains. It's through this little gate that looks like death. But then there's this broad gate and this boulevard that it leads to, and it says that that leads actually to spiritual narrowness. So here's the idea. It's spaciousness that leads to spiritual narrowness and destruction. But it's narrowness that leads to spaciousness in life. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is teaching us. So along the way, I'm gonna reference some things that, that, that this does not mean, right? That the narrow gate and the broad, the narrow gate and the narrow way, the broad gate and the broad way do not mean. One, when people think about this image, and it's a pretty well-known image for us, right? But they think that this person is standing at this crossroads, like he's standing at the fork in, in the road, right? And one goes off to the left and one goes off to the right. It's time for you to make a decision, right? That is not what the illustration teaches. This is not, we're not at a fork in, in the road. What Jesus is saying here, and, it, and if, if you look care, carefully, he doesn't ever talk about entering the broad way. He just encourages us to enter into the narrow gate and the narrow way. Why? Everybody is born onto the broad way. Everybody's already made a decision to walk in the broad way, to walk down the way that's easy, to walk down the way that leads to destruction. Everybody is on that way, a way a, the way that is self-seeking, the way that is easy, the way that doesn't, doesn't bother our plans for our life. We're born that way. We don't need to enter the broad way. We're all already there. It's easy because we're already born on it. And here's the reality. We're born ignorant of God and his ways and living like the crowd however we see fit. So left to ourselves, from this perspective, the kingdom of God looks so narrow. The gospel looks so narrow to us for those that are naturally on the broad way. And this is not a new thought in the sermon, though. He's been talking about this narrow way the entire time, but he actually comes out here and says it when he makes the demands that that he makes of us. 
He knows what he's asking of us. And this is where I, honestly, guys, I feel and I hear the sympathy of Jesus here. He's saying, I know, I know that this, what I'm asking of you in this narrow way. I know that I'm telling you that the way to life actually looks like death. I know that. I know what I'm asking of you. And I'm letting you know that. I know what this feels like. I know the narrowness that, if, that this feels like to enter into the kingdom of God through this narrow, constricting death. And we're going to talk about more of that at the end. But I just hear Jesus' words empathizing with us, letting us know, listen, I know this sounds impossible. I know that. So what is this narrow way like? What is this impossible gate in this impossible way? Jesus has been showing us the whole time. So I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna go back through the sermon for just a couple minutes and see what is this narrow way like? And I love being at the end of this series because now I get to talk about everything that everyone's already talked about. I, don't, I can't step on anybody's toes. I get to, I mean, it's been, it's been so hard to sit there and not wanna comment on everything we've been talking about. So now I get to. So that's what I was after in the planning of it, if you wanna know. Um, So let's understand what narrowness means. The first big idea is that narrowness means we have to leave everything behind. We have to leave everything behind. It's kind of like TSA at the airport. You guys ever tried to get through that scanner with something that's not allowed on a plane? Right, what do you have to do? You either and I know you've done this, right? You either have to go back to your car and put it back in your car or you have to dispose of it right there and never see it again, right? It's the same idea. Narrow means we have to leave stuff behind. Or has anyone ever, has anyone ever, I know you have, because you're like me, gotten a parking ticket. So you've gone to general district court, right? That downtown to appear before a judge and try to, or jury duty, jury duty. If you're not gonna confess your sins of getting a traffic ticket or something, Everyone goes to jury duty, right? So you gotta go down there. You know what you can't take into the court building? What can't you take in there? Your cell phone. How many times have you gone up to that gate and gone like, ah, you mean I gotta walk all the way back to my car? Yes, you do. (laughs) Yes, you do. So there's some stuff, narrowness means you can't take stuff in. We can't take ourselves in. We cannot take ourselves into the kingdom of God. Jesus describes our relationship to the world like this, Matthew 5, 13. He says, we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That means as Christians, we live for the good and the blessing of other people. That means completely that our lives are to be spent on going into pain, going into where things are worse, and like salt, preserve and heal it. Where people are running away, we run in. And that's saying that we have to leave behind our own dreams of comfort and our own way, don't we? If we're gonna run into where it's painful, run into where it's messy to preserve and heal, that means that we're gonna have to drop all of our vain imaginations of comfort, vain imaginations of how easy this life is gonna be for us. We have to leave our dreams of comfort behind. It's the, the, you know, it's, it's, it's every man for himself on the broad way, but the narrow means that we cannot live for ourselves and we have to deny our comfort and doing good for others. Here's the irony though. In reality, 
this spaciousness that we love to have in terms of having our own way, doing our own thing, and where no one bothers us, it actually leads to narrowness. Because when we get so white-knuckled gripped on our dreams and our life and what we want for ourselves, what we want, what we want, what we want, our lives actually shrink. Our, our, our lives actually shrink to the confines of our own claustrophobic life, don't they? when we get so centered on ourselves and our world gets so small. But here's what Jesus is saying to us. When we link our destiny to seeing the needs of others met, our life expands. Our life and our destiny gets bigger, gets as big as the entire world. If we can let go, if we can let go of our own dreams for comfort. Number two, we have to leave our plans. We have to leave our plans for our lives. And I'm, I'm thinking more right now about the big question of marriage, divorce, and remarriage that we tackled a few weeks ago. And if you were not here with us for, for that part, please go back and listen to this at chapter five. It doesn't get any more narrow than Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce. As if divorce, guys, is not painful enough. It gets even more narrow when Jesus talks about it. He says, marriage is so holy and so close to his heart and touches us more deeply than we can understand. Marriage, he wants to protect us from doing damage to our souls by saying to us back in chapter five that remarriage in some cases is adultery and sometimes not ever getting remarried ever is the path to faithfulness and joy. Because it doesn't get any more narrow than that. When anyone is staring at a life of faithfulness in a broken marriage or staring at a life of singleness afterwards, that is narrow. But Jesus is saying here, to know blessing, to know life, is to leave all our dreams at the door. That's what, that's what he's saying with the narrow gate. So we have to leave our rights I have to leave our rights behind. Remember in chapter five, he said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. If anyone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Are you serious, Jesus? Are you serious? In other words, what he's saying is that we're not to seek revenge. If we are hurt or sinned against, like an, like an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, right? That's, that's what we want. When we're hurt, when we're slapped, we, 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 want, we want justice, don't we? We want an eye for an eye. We want a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus is saying we're not to do that. We're to humble ourselves to either be hit again or to be kissed and reconciled. That's what Jesus is saying here. Continue to be vulnerable and seek to be reconciled to other people, even when we're slapped. And this is a great idea, and again, one that we wish everybody would embrace, right? But what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Whether we're hurt or slapped by someone figuratively, when we're injured, when we're insulted, when we feel slighted, what do we want to do? Do we turn the other cheek? <laughs> no. We want to hit back. We want to hurt them back. It doesn't matter how close they are to us, no matter how much we love them, when we are hurt, when we are slapped, when we're offended, we want to hit back. Think about this. Think about that party that you were not invited to. 
We're getting, we're, we're getting real this morning. Think about the party you were not invited to. What did you want to do? You wanted to throw a party and not invite them. Right? That's, that's how we react. Think about, think about this. Think, think about the deeper friendship that you see forming between two of your friends that's kind of leaving you on the outside. That feels like a slap in the face, doesn't it? How do we want to react? Well, we want to go get deeper with so-and-so so that they'll realize that we got the same thing going on that they do, right? Am I the only one that thinks like this? When your boyfriend or girlfriend, former boyfriend or girlfriend, starts dating someone else, what do you want to do? You want to get them back, don't you? You want to find someone that's going to make them feel just as jealous. And we feel personally slighted because our primary group of friends doesn't follow our agenda. What do you want to do? You want to separate yourself. You want to be like, you know what? You can't do that to me and get away with it. You can't do that to me. You know, we want, we, we do not turn the other cheek. We, we want to get back. And if you've been hurt deeply, especially by someone close, you know how hard it is to give up this right to retaliate, this right to be heard, this, this right to tell others what happens. You can form a mob against this person that has offended you. Jesus is saying forgiveness is hard. It is hard because it is costing you something. It is costing you huge to look past what someone has done to you. It's hard. That's why in the, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, it's forgive us our debts, one, one version says. Basically, forgive us what we owe to you as we forgive those who owe us. That is forgiveness. You owe me something and you do not have to pay it. This is the one that gets me, right, right here. How many internal conversations are you having with someone that's offended you? How are you getting back at them with your words in your mind? It's all an eye for an eye. And Jesus is saying the narrow way is leaving all of that behind. You know that grudge you're holding on to right now? You know the one that's really helping you, right? (laughs) The one that's filling your life with joy and peace? You'll be asked to let that go. May Jesus give us eyes to see what we should see. What white knuckle hold do you have on dreams and wants and grudges and you're holding on to it for dear life? He's, Jesus is saying here, you're holding on to that for death. You're holding on to all those things. It's gonna, Jesus is saying that this broad way, it actually leads to strangleholds on you. They will crush you. Ultimately, this Broadway, this spaciousness will be narrowness to us. So my fourth thought on here, you have to leave your goodness behind, judging others. Remember back in Matthew 7, 3, why do you see, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? I mean, seriously. I mean, but this is, the, this is the great thing about this. Anybody can see faults, right, in someone else and want to correct them, right? 
But you know what it's going to take, Jesus is saying, to actually confront someone that has a fault that you notice? You know what's going to, you know what's going to cost you? It's going to cost you deep repentance. It's going to cost you as much as it costs them to have that conversation. We must take the plank out of our own eye. And that takes hard work. I'm t- the easy way, the easy way is to point out faults in others, right? That's the broad way. Jesus is saying the narrow way means this confrontation is going to cost you as much as it costs them because you have to deal with your own heart and your own sin before you have any delicacy, any sensitivity, any care to gently take that speck with that little piece of tissue paper out of your friend's eye. That's, that's a narrow way. We have to leave our reputation behind too. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. <laughs> blessed are you when others revile you. you when, when you woke up this morning, you're like, you know, I want to be blessed today. I want to be happy. I just need someone to revile me, you know. That's not the way you woke up this morning. Jesus is in, again, being teaching us so well and saying, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Now, if you believe in Jesus, or you know what, maybe you're even just starting to believe in these things and starting to believe in Jesus. I, I know you've thought of this. <laughs> what are my friends? What are my coworkers? What is my family gonna think about me when they realize I believe what I believe? I mean, has that struck you recently? Like, like, what, like <laughs> what, what happens when they figure out what you really believe about Jesus? What are they gonna call you? When they realize that what, the how you read the Bible and what you think of it, you know what they're gonna call you? What are they gonna call you? Freak, yeah, no. They're, what are they gonna call you? They're gonna call you narrow-minded, right? They're gonna call you narrow-minded. I mean, and listen, in Richmond, in this intellectually forward-thinking place, and probably the culture that you live in here in Richmond, and maybe the creative classes downtown or maybe on the college campus, one of the worst things that anybody can say to you, man, you are narrow-minded. Isn't that like the worst slur? I mean, just saying it just makes me feel, ugh, you know? Like, are we willing to be called narrow-minded to believe in Christ? Just yesterday, we were at a soccer tournament. My, older, my, old, my two oldest girls play travel soccer, and uh, we were in Williamsburg. And we were, I was having a conversation with the other parents right there on, this, right there on the sideline. And... We started talking about religion and thoughts about Jesus right in the middle of a soccer game. And throughout, I can't remember the exact words that we were, that we were using, but it was, it, was, it was like an E.F. Hutton moment, right? Okay, and I just totally dated myself, and this is for everybody that's 40 or older. I had an E.F. Hutton moment, all right? And I'm not even gonna explain to you what that is if you're young enough and don't know it. You're gonna have to ask an older person, all right? So I had an E.F. Hutton moment, and it was like, she said to me, 
you believe all the words of the Bible are true? And it was like the referee stopped the game, every conversation stopped. It was like it was cloudy and the sun opened up and there was a beam of light right on top of me. I felt so narrow in that moment. I'm telling you, I felt the pinch in my heart. Boy, she thinks I am narrow. (laughs) I I struggle with that. I, I honestly struggle with that. And I said, you know what? Yes. And then the sun went away and the game started and everything else happened fine. But, but, but we were t- somehow we started talking about the exclusivity of Jesus. And I said, did, did you know that he said that, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him? He said that. And I didn't say it. He said it. People are going to misunderstand you. People are going to say to you, you are bigoted for believing that about Jesus. Even though this Sermon on the Mount and this narrow way describes the most unbigoted, unjudgmental, wide open and inclusive life you could imagine, people are gonna misunderstand you and say you are bigoted if you believe in Jesus the way the Bible teaches. How's that for narrow? That's the narrow gate. Are we willing, willing to close with Christ and be called narrow? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of all time, made this comment about this very passage and he said, nothing, nothing is more difficult in this world than to realize that we are individual persons. Are we willing to part with the crowd over the narrow way? It's only room for one person at a time. Few are those that are on it at any one time. So that's what narrow is like. Now what kind of people are on each way, right? So now if the sermon ended here, and I know that many of you, if you're like me, like, I wish the sermon did end here, right? I've had enough, thank you. So many rights, I'm begging for a left, just here we go. We might think that this is what the narrow and the broad way is like. Everybody that does good things, those are, those are the people that are on the narrow road. Everybody that does bad things, everyone that's immoral, everybody that cheats on their taxes and lies and steals and stuff like that, those are the guys on the broad way. And the narrow way is for good people, people that don't cheat on their taxes and always do the right thing and get A's on their tests and did well on their SAT and all that stuff. Whatever your standard of righteousness is, those are the good people. But as we take a look at these last few topics, we'll see that that is not the case. And as we look through the sermon and look through the end here, we do not see a good person and a bad person. We do not see an immoral person or a moral person. Remember what I read before about the two trees and the two houses? It's like this. The two trees look identical. They're both bearing fruit, right? Remember the houses I talked about? They, they are identical. They're identical. They're sitting right next to each other. They experience the same weather. Those two houses are the same, except for the one thing you can't see, their foundation. What, 
what are, what are we learning here? Both those on the narrow way and on the broad way are both doing good things. The person on the broad way is doing good things. The person on the narrow way is doing good things. Both are obeying the Ten Commandments. Both are giving. Both are praying. Both are fasting. But they're doing it for completely different reasons. Completely different reasons. And that's how this sermon gets even more narrow. It's about the heart, and it's about why we do anything good. Let's go, ready? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1, he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. See, everybody's practicing righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. The question is why? So when you give to the needy, Jesus is saying, both narrow folks and broad folks are giving to the needy. He's looking at the heart though. He says it's not the amount of good we do in the end, it's why we do it. And that's the most terrifying thing in the sermon for us, right? Because we're in the church, right? We like to do good things. This is a sermon for us. We love to do good things, but why do we do them? If we're honest, Many times we're doing good things, not for God, and not for others, but we're doing them for ourselves. Let's see how this works. Matthew 5, 2, thus when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that, they might be, that you might be praised by others. See, you might say, I would never do anything as silly as sound a trumpet so people would notice me when I'm doing something good. Well, you're way, too, more, you're way too sophisticated for that. I understand, right? You know how hard it is not to tell someone what you've sacrificed for somebody else? In subtle ways, in a prayer request or in, a, in just a side comment, you always want people around you to know what you've done for somebody else. That is, that is our default mode, and we, we find very subtle ways so other people can admire us. And the narrow way gets even better. It gets even more narrow. It's not that we don't tell others about it. We don't, can't even tell ourselves about it. Think about this. Don't tell your right hand what your left hand is doing. This means that we shouldn't even be aware, of our, aware to ourselves the good things that we're doing for people or giving to the needy, right? It means don't be aware that someone is, 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 is less than you. Don't, don't, don't be condescending. Don't be self-congratulating. Don't be, don't be um, paternalistic or patronizing to them when you give. Don't be aware or think it for a moment that this person is any worse off than you or any less than you. You are just as needy as them. And Jesus is saying, don't even speak those words to yourself. Because if you do, you're not giving, you're not giving for them. You're not giving for the glory of God. You're giving to yourself. Praying. There's two people praying. There's one praying on the Broadway, one praying on the narrow way. One prays so he can be heard by others. Another prays so he can be heard by God. Here's a question. Here's a question. How do we know, how, how do we know that we're really praying for God to hear us and not someone else? How do we know that we're doing anything with the right heart? 
think about this. When the day is done and your thoughts are free, your hands are free, your thoughts are free, and you can think about anything you want to think about in that moment. There's no one to talk to. There's no book to read. Where does your mind go to? What fills your thoughts? That's how we know whatever, that's how we know what our real God is. Whatever fills your heart at that moment, whatever fills your mind in that moment, when you are free to spend your thoughts on anything you can spend them on, what do you think about? It's something I've been struggling with real, and it has really helped me to diagnose my soul this way. I've noticed recently that at night, instead of spending some time either praying or reading the Bible for a few minutes, I'm on my iPhone, checking the weather, seeing where Clint Dempsey is gonna be traded to in the English Premier League, I'm thinking about all these different, and I'm going, wow, something's really shifted in my heart. It's really telling me where my real interests are. It's really telling me in that moment, what is that last thing I wanna be thinking about when I drift off to sleep? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? That's what Jesus is saying here. True religion is where your thoughts go when you can spend them on anything you want. Not when you're in here, when we're being directed and led to sing and to pray, which is really good and awesome and we need it. But this, you don't know if, you don't know if this is your true religion unless you think about God when you've got nothing else to do. It's getting narrow in here. <laughs> Fasting. Jesus says you can fast wrong, right? Really? Like you can fast wrong? I'm not even going to talk about that, but that's just, he does. Remember Jesus' words about anxiety. Last one here. Matthew 6, 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you think, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Picture this. Picture this. You got two guys working at Cap One. They're cube neighbors, right? They both make $60,000. They both have a car. They both have a nice house. They both have a girlfriend. They both have a dog, right? Everything on the outside looks absolutely the same. But if you really get to know these two guys, you'll know that one guy is an anxious wreck. He's fearful. He doesn't sleep at night. He's anxious. He's full of anxieties and fears. Why? Because he's seeking all those things that I just mentioned. And why is he seeking them? Maybe it's because his identity is wrapped up in them and he can't imagine life without the nice car, without the girlfriend, without the house, without the stuff, without the $60,000, without the cool cube at Cap One. He can't imagine life apart from that. But the other guy sleeps well. He's at peace. He's not anxious. He doesn't need any of that stuff. This guy... If he's on the narrow way, he knows that his Father in heaven knows everything he needs and will provide him all of his needs as God's will dictates. He doesn't need those things. He's not seeking them. He enjoys them, but they don't own him. Two trees, two houses, two guys at Cap One, all look the same, but one's on the broad way, one's on the narrow way. 
The narrow way, guys, leads to life. It leads to blessing. Tim Keller put it this way. This Sermon on the Mount describes life at its highest. It's like nosebleed life. It begins in narrowness, but opens up into broad spaciousness. It's a life of joyful divestiture. I love that, joyful divestiture, constantly shedding power, shedding wealth, having integrity in sex and in marriage, loving people so much that you never treat them with anger or indifference. We trust in God so much that you are never anxious or stingy. If we were to live like this, you know what we would be? We'd be the light of the world. We would be the salt of the earth. We would be a shining beacon as a testimony to who God is and all that he is. Well, how do we enter? Because reality says, we're not living like that. We're not doing those things. If you're like me, as you listen to this, maybe you feel the narrowness pinching, coming in on you. Maybe the walls are kind of caving in. You, you, you sense how much you are not like the narrow way. Leaving behind your dreams, your rights, your reputation, your goodness. How are you feeling about that right now? How are you reacting to this? How do you think about it? If you're feeling hopeless, there's just no way. Now, I might have had a chance when it was about doing good things and not doing bad things. I might have had a chance there. But if it's about thought and intentions and motives of the heart, no way. If you feel hopeless, you, you know what? You might actually be at the door and able to go in. Here's the deal. The only other place that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about entering, Matthew 5, 20. He says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this word righteousness, it's a non-starter for us. We don't get it, right? We don't ever use this word. We don't ever use the word righteousness. You know, I guarantee you, in the past week, you have not used the word righteousness outside of a Bible conversation, right? We just don't use it. So what is righteousness? It's so hard to define, right? Jesus has just defined it for us in the whole sermon. He said, do you want to know what righteousness looks like? you want to know what right living looks like? It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's perfect love. It is integrity. It's generosity. It's praying. It's piety. It's absolutely perfect. And Jesus says, you have to have that perfect righteousness to get in. So how are you reacting? Are you reacting like the students who read this? That's preposterous. That's ridiculous. Get it away from me. That's repugnant, impossible. But if you're a Christian or becoming a Christian, though it convicts you deeply, you may read these words, and though it convicts you deeply, you're saying, but I want it. I want that. So how do we get it? There's only one place, there's only one person that's ever entered the narrow gate on his own. Jesus entered the narrow gate and walked it perfectly. Here's how, real quick. How did Jesus become the salt of the earth? He left his perfect glory in heaven 
and became a cell in a, as a human being. You talk about being squeezed, compressed, crushed. This is shocking that all of our sacrifices, what Jesus became for us. The creator of the universe became a cell and born as a baby. The one who enjoyed perfect eternal comfort was stripped of his divine comfort and ran into our mess to preserve us and heal us. He gave up his own dreams. He prayed to God in secret and the most free will in the universe said, my God, my God, please take this from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was slapped in the face by the Jews and the Romans. And how did he respond? He was rejected and crucified, but he turned the other cheek. And instead of crying out for justice against the people that were killing him, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Jesus, the appointed heir of all things, the very radiance of God's glory, it says in Hebrews, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, lost every ounce of his reputation on the cross when he took our sins upon himself and hung there naked like a criminal before man and God. You talk about losing your reputation and feeling narrow. Jesus lost everything because he was taking our sin upon himself. It was here that he not just took our sinful record, but he actually gave us his righteous, perfect record. And on that record, on that sacrifice alone, guys, on that record, he declares us righteous. Like in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, he made him who knew no sin to be our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how we get it by faith in Christ's work for us, his perfect life and perfect death in our place. You wanna enter? Let's pray. God, I thank you for this, for this reminder that at every place we fail on the narrow way, you succeeded. God, I ask that though this convicts us deeply, that our hearts this morning would long, would long for this spacious life that comes to the narrow gate. God, we trust you, we ask God for you to bring us along in your son, through your righteousness, amen.